0: Let's go be logical Christians. Have you ever noticed how conservatives and liberals can look at exactly the same thing and come to nearly polar opposite conclusions? Yeah, I know, it's, it's usually pretty subtle, subtle like a brick to the face. Because of this, the two sides have very different perceptions of reality and very different solutions to problems. On today's episode, we can't let a good crisis go to waste, but not for the reason you might think. Then we'll talk about racist solutions for made-up racist problems. And finally, we'll talk about how we might have found the missing key as to why the two sides can't seem to agree. So, crack open a can of your emergency food storage, put on your glasses with those Coke bottle-thick racial lenses, and gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee that here we goeth. Never let a good crisis go to waste. I've mentioned this saying before and it just kind of keeps popping up. This is a tool of the political left because it preys on emotionalism. When you're highly emotional, such as during or soon after a crisis, your logical thinking ability plunges. Rather than act, you tend to react. Now I'm saying you because my emotions were never really installed properly from the factory. I mean, they're in there, they just don't function as designed. On the flip side, my logicalness was fully upgraded. Every possible factory and aftermarket option was bolted on, tweaked and calibrated, certified for peak performance. But this isn't about me. This is about emotional you. Now, let me start here. We're going to speak around the shooting that has recently occurred at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. Now, I say around because we're not going to be speaking about the shooting. I want to be clear. I'm not minimizing the shooting, the tragedy, the emotion of that event. What I am doing is covering the leftists that apparently have a master guide about how to take any good crisis and turn it into a push to sell their agenda just, you know, that much more to an emotional This is emotional manipulation played out slowly, playing the long game to bring about the socialist utopia they desire, eventually. So I'm not in any way minimizing the tragedy that happened. On the contrary, I'm going to expose and mock an organization that is minimizing the tragedy. Found on KUNC.org, this is apparently the NPR for Northern Colorado, you know, just right down the road a piece from Buffalo, New York. Headline: The Buffalo shooting is a reminder that millions don't live near a grocery store. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, I'll be honest. The author, Laurel Wamsley, appears to be yet another agenda-driven woketavist, but looking through the headlines only, just the headlines, of her recent articles, she doesn't give off the vibe of crazy leftist, although she's definitely on the left of the spectrum. Now, Although this article was found on a Colorado website, she apparently lives in Washington, D.C., so it's likely this story is just kind of plopped out there to all the NPR affiliates that our tax dollars are forced into making happen. Okay, all the disclaimers aside, let's see what gems this article has to offer us. (laughs) And oh man, this is going to make your head hurt. I'm going to start by just reading the opening few paragraphs verbatim, as they are simply gold. Quote, The racist massacre at a Buffalo, New York grocery store this month has refocused attention on an issue that affects millions of Americans. Lack of access to healthy, affordable food. The shooter not only tore apart lives and families, he also struck an institution at the heart of a community, a grocery store that residents fought for years to get in a neighborhood that hadn't had a supermarket like it in decades. It was the village watering hole, Tommy McClam, a resident of Buffalo's East Side neighborhood, told NPR last week. It was more than just a Topps grocery store. It was a lot bigger than that for the community. With tops closed for the foreseeable future as authorities continue to investigate the shooting. The community around it has been left without easy access to healthy and affordable food. In other words, it has become a food desert. Okay, so, yes, there was an attack. Can we stop there, though? D- do we not have enough leftist agenda to pull from that? Do we need to move into the dreaded food desert? Now, let's look at her words carefully, shall we? The grocery store was at the heart of the community. Okay, maybe, right? But what are the boundaries of what we're calling the community? I I think that's important. You'll find out why in a moment. Fought for years to get. Okay, how many years? How long ago? How long has it been there? You can look it up if you want to. I'm not going to. The neighborhood hadn't had a supermarket like it in decades. Okay, well, I won't dispute that. But again, what are your boundaries of neighborhood? And then they were left without easy access to healthy and affordable food. In other words, it has become a food desert. Well, all right. What's our definition for food desert exactly? Well, luckily, she answers the food desert question for us since that's really kind of her point. Now, when you think of a desert, you think of a barren wasteland, devoid of anything as far as the eye can see. You think of a place that if you were in the middle of, you're as good as dead. It's a matter of time. So a food desert is exactly like that. You are as good as dead. Now, she defines it as, quote, an area where people have limited access to a variety of healthy and affordable food. These areas may have convenience stores, carryouts, or fast food restaurants, but they don't have any large grocery store supermarkets or super centers that carry an array of fresh foods, including fruits and vegetables. Okay, now, I'm gonna hop out of the article, and there's there's so much in there. But she actually quickly abandons the buffalo community as well as as she's used them for her purposes now. We'll jump out of her article, then come back to the ridiculousness and the contradictory ridiculousness in her article in just a moment. Now, our first question should be, anyone, anyone, is this neighborhood actually in a food desert? For that, I had to do some massive digging all the way to Google Maps. Then I did a little bit of work establishing a radius around Topps Grocery Store, to see what kind of carnage this desert contains. <sighs> in an approximate one mile radius from Tops, in just the simple work I did, she's right. She's very right. I mean, if you discount and ignore the Jefferson Food Market, NNN Food Market, Twin City Market, Maine and Utica Market, Maine Food Market, Fillmore Utica Food Market, and Al Axa Supermarket, there is literally nothing. And expanding that radius to two miles doesn't really help. Again, not anything except for the J.D. Price Right Market, Lexington Cooperative Market, Save-A-Lot, Rosado Foods, Mozeb's Groceries, Virginia Food Market, Sam's Food Market, Allentown Food Shoppy, Price Right Marketplace of Stewie's Vincent Plaza, Aldi, another Save-A-Lot, Super Price Choppers, and Fillmore Supermarket, which obviously none of those carry reasonably priced and or healthy food options. But Dan, you cry. What if people can't get to these places an entire mile or less away from the very beating heart of their neighborhood? You know, tops. Well, a quick look up for Buffalo, New York reveals that they are the proud owners of the Niagara Frontier Transportation Authority, or NFTA to you and me, Metro Bus and Rail System. The rail for most of the route is free to use. Only if you go from above ground to the subway section do you have to pay a, quote, small charge. From the com site, quote, bus stops are found on almost every city of Buffalo Street Corner and many other spots throughout the region. In fact, when looking up this top's location, good old number 18 runs right past, and I'd wager to say that there are street corners right next to tops, where people could board, again for free or very little, and if that route doesn't get you to a reasonably priced market with healthy food, I'm just willing to wager that you could probably get off there and get on another bus. I think you can see why this author left Buffalo as fast as she could. She goes on to state the fact that the term food desert is being done away with by those in the know because it's not just a naturally occurring issue. Mm -mm. No, this is straight up racism. Apparently the white man wants the black man to have neither reasonably priced nor healthy food alternatives. Nope, only high-priced garbage for you, black man. Well, Carolyn Harries, the acting director of Healthy Food Access at The Food Trust, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit, said that these food deserts are, quote, a result of systemic practices such as redlining that have caused disinvestment and a subsequent lack of grocery stores in communities. Uh Uh-huh. There you have it. Now we know. Now, according to the 2019 census, 18.8 million people live in low-income census tracts, having low access to food stores. And what is low access defined as? How many hundreds of miles away are we talking? Well, they define it as one one-hundredth of one hundred miles. So, for the mathematically challenged, that's a, that's a mile. If you're more than a mile, and this isn't an urban setting, more than a mile from a grocery store, you're in a low-access uh, food desert wasteland of doom and death. Now, this literally concerns me as I am two miles from my local Kroger. I am literally in a low food access hellscape and I didn't even know it. I had no idea how oppressed I was and I was just conditioned to take it. Oh, I'll run over to Kroger quick, I would exclaim before my eyes were opened. Of course, I'm also white, so it probably doesn't count. But not mocking. Seriously, the senseless tragedy is unbelievable. As the author states, quote, depending on which measure you use, limited access to a food store affects somewhere between 5% and 17% of the U.S. population, says Elena Roan, an agricultural economist at the USDA Economic Research Service. What does she mean depending? You use the higher number always. Agenda, come on. (sighs) And if you want to see for yourself, if you can even stomach it, what level of food hell you live in, you can go to a USDA map showing the mass starvation by food desert across the U.S. Now, this map breaks down in a few ways. Apparently, if you're urban, you can see if you're one half of a mile or more, or one excruciating mile or more away from the accepted foodstuffs. If you're rural, the values jump to 10 and 20 miles, respectively, because I... I guess you just don't count as much since you're just country folk. But then in her zeal, to prove her point, she references a 2009 USDA report that says people actually don't only shop around the house, but also on their way to and from work and school and church, etc. So not really as, you know, deserty as one might think, you know, with transportation and normal life activities. So she then tries to make a connection that some people use SNAP benefits. Now, can anyone tell me the last place with food items for sale that you went into that didn't accept SNAP? Then she talks about health and weight in relation to food choices, but then says that there is no direct link, that studies have been done to link the two, and they've found that that connection was dubious at best. So so she's not impressing me here. She moves on and tries to make a case for rural residents living in their personal farmland food deserts, especially if they don't have a car. So having grown up in a mostly rural region, although admittedly I personally lived in the metropolis consisting of about 3,000 people, I don't remember ever hearing about a farmer or just someone living in the country that didn't have some sort of a vehicle. That seems um, implausible for the most part. But for those of you that chose to live outside the city, it, and you're going to need to sit down for this, it takes longer for you to make the round trip to the store and back. And that is literally not fair. So how do we stop this genocide? Well, there's the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, the HFFI. They help people who want to plant a grocery store in locations that are financially stupid to do so. Quote, operating costs in food deserts are generally higher, while profit margins tend to be lower, explains Laura Strange, a spokesperson for the National Grocers Association, which represents independent wholesale and retail grocers. It sometimes takes a number of years for these stores to become profitable enough to sustain their operations. (laughs) Well, shoot, sign me up. Ms. Strange went on to say that the HFFI can help by, quote, providing grocers with the initial support they need to help mitigate some of the challenges experienced when operating a store in a food desert. Oh, well, does initial support for some of the challenges extend the uh, number of years before I make any money so I can feed my family some reasonably priced and healthy food alternatives? Or is that only to get me started so I can work my way through the funhouse of bankruptcy in a relatively short order? You know, asking for a friend. Finally, how about home delivery? Online delivery services like Amazon, Instacart, Uber Eats, Walmart, what about those? Well, those help, but there are still 4.5 million people who are low-income, low-access, They can't get these services because they either don't have broadband or they're outside the accepted delivery range of the services because they live in the country. I go back to my question about how many country dwellers are just out there with no form of transportation. I mean, come on, not a truck, a car, motorcycle, bicycle, a lawn tractor, a big tractor, nothing. I mean, not anything. Well... As I get to the end of this article, they drop the hammer. I can see why they didn't lead with this, as none of us would have ever made it any farther into the article, what with the uncontrollable weeping and sobbing. Quote, but grocery stores provide more than just groceries. They also provide jobs for members of the community, and their physical presence matters. Quote within the quote, people like to go to shop, to see people, to pick out the things they want and to touch them, says Harry's. I gotta admit, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable with Miss Harry's. I think I need an adult at this point. A grocery store is a place, she says, where people go to feel connected to their community. Um, okay, look, admittedly, I'm an introvert, but a, a very observant introvert. I know that I go grocery shopping because I have to, not because I want to. I make a list, I get what's on the list, and probably some candy, and then I get out. In fact, running into someone I know is usually more awkward than anything, as the standard line of, what are you up to, makes you look exactly as awkward and moronic as you feel. Looking around the stores, it's the walking dead. Nobody is happy to be there. Nobody happily fingering things and fondling produce and whatnot no merriment and joy it's people that want to get out of there as fast as possible and i dare say most are are right up on the edge so look here's what i want to sum this up with i don't want people to go hungry i'd love for everyone to have exactly what they want when they want it for the price they want at the snap of their fingers but the bible tells us and logic confirms that the poor will always be with us That said, studies by those that are not biased for their agenda have been done that show there are literally no such things as food deserts. Now, does everyone have a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods 37 inches from their front door? No. But do they need to? I mean, this just highlights a difference between conservatives that believe in capitalism and the bleeding heart liberal types. Those on the left are appalled that not everyone can have instant access to avocado and brie and... Some sort of fancy wine. I have no idea. I don't drink. Let's say Chapeau du Rouge. Good enough. And no matter the cost, business owners should plop down these massive stores every half a mile so that not a single person is ever inconvenienced. And if all you're doing it for is profit, you're a monster. Now, those on the right, on the other hand, are looking to make a profit because... Having money coming in above and beyond the money going out is how you personally um, survive. So if I'm going to drop a massive amount of startup cash to build a store, I kind of need to know that there will be a relatively quick turnaround. These kind of stories just drive me crazy. I'd like to say I have some massive biblical takeaway from this, but the reality is it's pretty simple. Tell the truth. This is nothing more than the young kid telling a fanciful tale about how the lamp got broken. Look, just tell the truth. The principle is pretty straightforward here. Unfortunately, and and this is an apolitical point, agenda often requires us to uh, bend the truth a little, exaggerate a little, you know, lie like a dog. This is not who we're called to be. How much more could we help those in poverty... How much less debt would we accrue as a country? How much lower could taxes be if people didn't develop an agenda and then dream up ways to spend boatloads of cash for their agenda, but it's going to take, you know, some embellishment of the truth or oftentimes an outright abandonment of the truth and reality in order to get that agenda pushed on through. So my word of warning. You'll find these types of opinion pieces and editorials being passed off as legitimate news stories, just like this one, all the time. Don't fall for it. Just as we should be discerning in the realm of religion and faith, so too should we be discerning in the worldly matters. Don't allow yourself to be duped by people that are good at tugging at your heartstrings. Test, evaluate, listen to your gut... Listen to your conscience. Looking at the religious, societal, and political landscapes right now, there are too many people today that are governed strictly by emotion and what they're being told to think, feel, and believe. In all things, politics, social issues, religion, and every other realm of our existence, use the mind and the ability to reason given to you by God to discern to the best of your ability what's true and what's lies. Ask God to help you discern truth from fiction, facts from lies, reality from emotionally manipulated fantasy. Now, go to Google Maps and find out if you too are food doomed. Tell me you're a racist without telling me you're a racist. Here, I'll go first. From WestCookNews.com headline, OPRF to implement race-based grading system in 2022-23 school year. Uh Uh-huh. Heard that right. The Oak Park and River Forest School District in Oak Park, Illinois, is going to require that the teachers, quote, adjust their classroom grading scales to account for the skin color or ethnicity of its students. This super-woke, mega-double-Doppler virtue signaling move was reportedly discussed and approved by the school board in a meeting on May 26th. They call the plan the, quote, Transformative Educations, Professional Development and Grading plan. which. Think you'd agree? Just rolls off the tongue. The plan was presented by the assistant superintendent for student learning, Ms. Lori Fiorenza. Well, I'm I'll be honest. I'm assuming the Ms. as she might identify as a Mr. or a mix, or as a flaming racist. <clears throat> Now, as I did some research on this article, I found that there were fact-checkers saying that no, they did not adopt this plan, and they are not grading based on race. But then you read other articles, such as on Breitbart.com, who corrected some parts of their initial article, which was based off of this West Cook News article, to more accurately reflect what the presentation at the school board meeting said. But I agree with Breitbart. They may not be saying they're going to grade on race. And it may not be in the 22-23 school year, but they're absolutely laying the groundwork to grade on race. Let's continue on. According to the West Cook News article, they cite data from the school that showed 38% of the sophomores that took the SAT failed. Okay, well, sophomore, that's probably not too bad, and generally at that age, it's more of a practice-type test, but the problem comes in with the breakdown. The breakdown was a 77% failure rate for blacks, 49% failure rate for Hispanics, 27% for Asians, and 25% for whites. And not to sound racist, but uh, Asians? I mean, whites beat the Asians? <laughs> Come on, get your head in the game. Anyway... We'll get into the presentation that was made to the board, which you can reference in the link down in the notes in a moment. That'll cover much of what the West Cook News article said, but they wrapped up their article with a couple things I think are pertinent to the discussion. In August 2021, the same Ms. Fiorenza, you know, the definitely not racist racist lady, after seeing a spike in the F grades, said, quote, OPRF's administration will adopt language that makes and keeps the system visible, and continues to name racism as a complex, interconnected structure. We must recognize the unique challenges faced during the pandemic intensify the need for a systemic approach to confronting the racial and socioeconomic discrepancies often experienced by our underrepresented student population." Okay, That was coupled with an apparent adjusted grading scale by one teacher in the school that lowered the score for an F. 219%. So you can get one question out of five correct and still get a D. Yeah, seems logical. To Ms. Forenza's statement, do you hear the critical race buzzwords in there? Uh, Language. Have to change the language. Racism. Systemic. Underrepresented. These are all words that on their own are generally benign, but when put under the lens of critical race theory, and when strung together like she did, they take on an all-new dangerous and overtly racist meaning. Okay, diving into the presentation. The link I was able to find shows it as an 11-slide presentation, nine of which actually contain the information. Reading through the bullet points, again, we look for the keywords, and two words kept popping up, equity and equitable. Now, unless you've been living on a different planet, you know there's absolutely no doubt that those are also key words that have been co-opted to have very specific racial meanings being used by every race baiter, critical race theorist, black lives matterite, and woke activist trying to signal their virtue by doing nothing but literally and in actuality insulting and denigrating people of color, primarily blacks. So one of the goals in this presentation is, quote, by fall of 2023, consistently integrate equitable assessments and grading practices into all academic and elective courses. Okay, just remember, word choice matters here. Apparently, in the 2021-22 school year, they implemented a late start on Wednesdays and used that time for professional development of teachers. They stated that this development, quote, aligned to district initiatives and centered in equity. Mm-hmm. I bet it did. Also during the 2021-22 school year, a team of teachers and administrators read five books and discussed the concepts therein for possible adoption in the school's systems. The books are Grading for Equity, On Your Mark, Get Set, Go, Shocker, those were written by the same guy, Pointless, and What We Know About Grading. I looked into these books, read a few reviews, looked at the table of contents, and it doesn't take long to see that the push is apparently to do away with anything you and I would consider to be traditional grading, because um, it's mean and unfair and inequitable, and it makes people feel bad, and it doesn't really reflect who the child is, you know, as a person. So, get rid of the 0 to 100 scale. Get rid of the zero to four GPA scale. Get zeros out of the grade books. In other words, no more zeros. Give not one, but multiple grades to students based on various factors of who they are, not just what they know. And then have students themselves evaluate their learning journey at the end of the semester. And other, can I just say, asinine ideas like this were contained in the books. Well, Apparently, after studying these groundbreaking pieces of literature and newthink from their summary of the findings in the books, they found, and these are direct quotes of the bullet points in the presentation, traditional grading practices perpetuate inequities and intensify the opportunity gap. Integrating equitable assessments and grading practices into all academic and elective courses requires the collaborative effort of a team of educators committed to improvements that benefit all students. Many OPRFHS teachers are successfully exploring and implementing more equitable grading practices such as utilizing aspects of competency-based grading, eliminating zeros from the gradebook, and encouraging and rewarding growth over time. Teachers and administrators at OPRFHS will continue the process necessary to make grading improvements that reflect our core beliefs. Now, the final slide was entitled Next Steps and said, quote, Oak Park and River Forest High School administration and faculty will examine grading and reporting practices in academic and elective courses utilizing evidence-based research and the racial equity analysis tool. The examination and reflection of practices will require that OPR, FHS, administration, and faculty clearly define the following purpose for grading and proficiency. Oak Park and River Forest High School will establish a philosophy of grading that reflects a rigorous, meaningful, and evidence-based process by which student learning is understood. So what is this evidence-based, also called standards-based, education or learning that they keep talking about? Well, from what I can find, it's more of a holistic approach to grading. The teacher sets up rubrics of expectations at the beginning of the year or semester so every child knows what they're expected to know by the end. And then it gets a little loosey-goosey in my opinion. And rather than use the standard 0 to 100% scale, and rather than record grades for all homework, quizzes, tests, and projects, the teachers have to kind of manage the progress of each student on a one to four scale and and then tailor the instructions and projects based on level. They also only record some grades from some things. And again, this sounds like it's more of a feeling rather than a proficiency check, which is what traditional grades are. Now, I'll be honest, when I look at this, this is essentially removing the parent from the equation. That's what I get. The system used to be, I'll teach, your job is to learn, will have points of evaluation and various methods of tracking your progress. Those were emotionless, math-driven assessments. Then, if the child came home with a 75% on a test or a 0% on a homework, it was up to the parent to take whatever action they deemed fit to try to get the grades to what they had decided were acceptable. But now, parents don't really need to be involved with the learning process. In fact, everything I'm seeing says that this will help parents understand what the child is doing, but nothing I've found says that it will involve the parent in any way. Sadly, I can't chalk all this up as nefarious, as more and more parents are bowing out of any involvement with the kids. They just rely on the teachers to do the raising, the teaching, the indoctrinating, and then yell at the teachers when the child scores low on something. So I can see how teaching and grading may need to change, but at the same time, I'm a root cause guy. The teacher is supposed to teach material and evaluate mastery, and that's all. They aren't supposed to talk about their feelings, talk about their sexual arrangements, talk about their personal political ideologies, groom the kids, or in any other way raise them. From a root cause standpoint, we need to fix the parents. But now, take this grading system, the more holistic, feeling-based system, rather than the hard numbers, and throw in a sprinkle of empathy, remember, that's the Generally bad kind of pathy in most cases. For students you feel sorry for, mix in a heaping amount of critical race theory and the idea that we must provide reparations and always possible. Fold in parents that are increasingly antagonistic toward teachers, siding with their precious angels. And whisk in, I'm running out of cooking terms here, teachers that are also expected to not so much prove they can teach, but pass kids to the next grade. And you get a recipe, see what I did there, for disaster. Now, I know, I'm old, and thus old school, but seems to me the tried and true method of you passed or you failed, knowing that 90% and above is an A, 80 to 89% is a B, yada yada, and below 60% is a whoopin', I mean an F, it seems like that system uh, worked for decades centuries i don't know i looked into it and from what i can find the a to f scale has been in place for about 80 years but grading performance has really been in place for at least 200 if not 300 years although it was kind of a private grade and a publicly holistic kind of system from what i can surmise regardless even the somewhat holistic methods used previously were simply based on mastery and nothing else. They weren't tailored because of your demographic or your learning style or your income level or anything else. You either mastered it, as determined by the instructor, or you didn't. So what I see here is a twofold issue. The first is the parents. Ask any teacher out there, and with the exception of a few districts and maybe, maybe very specific private schools with rigorous enrollment requirements, and you'll find that parent involvement or in a lot of cases now, guardian involvement, as the parents are gone for whatever reason, is uh, very, very low. The stories I've heard of how kids come in dressed in the middle of winter, the general hygiene of kids, parent-teacher meetings, if those happen at all, the number of elderly grandparents caring for young children, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And this dysfunction directly translates to test scores, homework, and proficiency. And this is where I'll be probably labeled a racist, this is more prevalent in the black and Hispanic communities. But don't worry, us white breads are catching up fast. The liberal wing of our political system has never relinquished slavery. They've just modified how they accomplish it. Rather than literally chaining people, beating people, forcing them to work in the fields, they've put them on government plantations called inner cities, ghettos, and projects. They've given them government handouts, removed any expectation of societal normalcy promoted and rewarded bad behavior, and decimated the black community overall. The black community used to have a better marriage rate, a much lower divorce rate than all other ethnicities in America. They were family-oriented, God-fearing, church-going, hard-working people. Think of the worship music that has come out of that group of people. Look at what the past generations not only endured, but overcame. Slavery, poverty, illiteracy, discrimination. But now... Massive rates of divorce or, more likely, single mothers as marriage rates have plummeted, but unwed births have skyrocketed. The abortion mills are focused on the black communities because that was one of Margaret Sanger's goals, to limit or eliminate those undesirable Negroes. And the black community has been duped into promoting and pushing abortion. In New York, for example, killing more black babies than they're giving birth to every year. The churches have been co-opted by the social justice and critical race peddlers to ensure that the black community doesn't read the Bible for what it says, that we are all one race in Adam, that we are all one race in Christ, that we are all image bearers of God, that there is only one way to get to heaven through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus, that love should trump hate, forgiveness should trump vengeance, and etc. And our article today, Lowering the Expectations for Blacks, because, let's be honest, They're just too gosh darn stupid to be able to do the work that whites can do. I mean, just look at them. They're black. I mean, can someone explain to me how changing the grading systems based on race is a good thing? For anyone? For our country? The SAT has been modified multiple times and is undergoing another modification right now. They keep saying it's to make it more applicable or some such nonsense. But the bottom line is that the only way for the United States to save face is to change the system. Read that make it easier, in order to keep the scores up. The ACT is no longer a test. No, now it's four tests that you can average together to get your composite score. Or even better, you can take it however many times you want, take the best score in each of the sections, and get your super score. IQ levels have been steadily dropping over the years. Just a little bit. But when you're looking at a country or global average, and you see that our IQ, our intelligence, is going down, that's not really a great sign. I mean... (laughs) Am I wrong? It's amazing to see the convergence, done consciously or not, of various liberal, anti-scientific, anti-god, anti-reality theories. Evolution states that blacks are less evolved than whites. Yes, I know that the modern science fantasy peddlers have corrected that because it's not PC to say it, but that's what the theory literally states. The concept of slavery reparations is, again, nothing but a cash grab by the politicians. If you don't think they'll get their cut of that sweet, sweet money, either directly or in buying votes, you're crazy. And a way to continue to oppress blacks by showing them just how oppressed and helpless they are without their government masters. Critical race theory is a religion in itself to replace God, it has its own doctrine, its own savior, its own theology, its own sacraments, and they use just enough scripture in the churches to fool most of the people most of the time. And this emotion-based, very evil, soft bigotry of low expectations that we're thrusting on the black population, things like they can't be expected to get good grades, they can't be expected to control their actions and emotions, they can't be expected to not drink or do drugs. They can't be expected to not have sex and create babies, but they can't be expected to be punished with a baby. They can't be expected to have a photo ID. They can't be expected to find their way to a voting location. They can't be expected to find a job. They can't be expected to stay out of trouble, and the list is practically endless. This is evil. Referencing this specific article, this specific school district, and many like it, I'm not saying that education can't be improved. The best things we could do is abolish the Department of Education on a federal level as a start, and then make teachers' unions illegal, then throw out every teacher that can't teach and is more interested in feeling up the students, desires nothing more than to groom their students into being at least one letter of the LGB alphabet soup, and then start over with private schools teaching the fundamentals, doing the things that we know have worked in the past as a reset, and go from there. I'm not saying that the methods, the curriculum, the grading scales can't be changed or updated or made better. I'm saying that's not what we're doing. That's not what this school is moving toward. They're moving in the direction of more evil, not less. Allowing God back into the schools, not forcing God back in, just allowing God back in, that would be good. Teaching children we're all one race, preferably based on the Bible, but different ethnicities, that would be a good place to start. Setting expectations of behavior, comportment, civility, proficiency, and mastery. Those would be good. Teaching children that they're all valuable, that they're all loved. Regardless of their home lives, they're all loved. That would be good. There are so many ways we could help the minorities, so many ways we could help children in general, and ultimately improve society, reduce crime, reduce drugs, and everything else. But it has to start with looking at reality rather than emotionalism, logic rather than feelings. Yeah, but I wouldn't hold my breath for it, as that simply does not fit with the overall goal of power and control that our overlords desire. So as people who care, and especially as Christians who are definitely supposed to care, it's up to us. We need to bring the love of Christ, the higher societal expectations, the hope of salvation, the practical plans of action. And I don't know how we do that, other than we need to be who God calls us to be, in a world that's going the other direction. Speaking hard truths, standing up to the evil, countering the lies, it's a thankless, tireless, unending job, but it's the job we must all be engaged in, in whatever form and to whatever degree that takes. Now look, I know there's no difference between a man or a woman, or other, or none, or agender, which kind of seems like that would be the same as none, or bigender, which also spells big ender, or gender fluid, or gender nonconforming, or gender questioning, which aren't all those pretty much the same. Look, what we know for sure is that all humans, well, no, not everyone identifies as a human, all bipedal, non primate, Homo sapiens are the same. Yeah, need a nap after trying to navigate through that. So since they're the same, we can be whatever we want, whoever we want, do whatever we want, because that's how our world works these days. We all know this. This is basic scientific fact for the late uh, 20th and mostly the doomed 21st century. And yet we find something that I've been saying for a long time. When it comes to political affiliation, liberal left or conservative right, There's a definite difference. And in an interesting study published in November of 2021, incidentally on my birthday, maybe we have a little glimpse as to why. From newamericangovernment.org, headline, Study, Testosterone Treatment Turns Democrat Voters More Conservative. So there you have it. But what does this mean? And I'm probably going to wade into some dangerous waters here. I... I must be careful. So, the article itself is pretty short. It references a study by Paul Zack. Now, you may never have heard of him, and neither have I, but apparently, he's huge in the world of social behaviors. He's like one of the top cited professors in that field in the world. My point in bringing that up is that he at least appears to be uh, good at what he does. The study took 136 voting-age males and tracked their voting preferences throughout the 2012 election season. Yes, 2012, I double-checked, and so this was the Obama-Romney election. In the study, after obtaining political affiliations of these men, synthetic testosterone or a placebo was administered to the men. As the researchers continued to track their political affiliation, they found that, quote, when weekly affiliated Democrats received additional testosterone, the strength of their party fell by 12 percent, and they reported 45 percent warmer feelings toward Republican candidates for president. Further, in pre-study testing, they found that, quote, weakly affiliated Democrats had 19% higher basal testosterone than those who identified strongly with the party. They also found that for weakly affiliated Republicans or strongly affiliated Democrats, they were much less affected by the additional testosterone. However, quote, our findings provide evidence that neuroactive hormones affect political preferences. The article wraps up with a statement that should make us stop and pause, quote, the study comes amidst an ongoing discussion about declining testosterone levels in the U.S. So looking at voting demographics over time, we see that men have consistently voted conservative over liberal at a split of about 50 to 40. Looking at a graph from 1994 to 2018, it's fluctuated some with a slight reversal in 2008, which was the Obama-McCain election and then the ultimate election of, of Obama. As bad as it was for our country, it was historic. It, it had so much potential Wasted as it turns out, but a lot of potential. And with regard to our elections, this was an outlier. So that crossover, that reversal, is understandable. Now, looking at the same time period for women, they started at 48 42 for Democrats in 94 and have generally widened the gap to 56 38 in 2018 with a definite bulge in 2008. Same reasons. For 2020, the Trump-Biden debacle and or crime, we see that men voted 53-45 for Trump, women voted 57-42 for Biden, and women generally turn out to vote more than men. So women really screwed up or rescued the country, depending on your point of view, which uh, have you seen the country? I'll let you decide. So when putting this study and this party affiliation together, what do we see? testosterone level tends toward conservatism. The question is why? So as I do, I try to reason this out logically. What does testosterone do? Unfortunately, we have a huge anecdotal pool of subjects to look to because of the latest push to turn all girls into boys, or more accurately, psychologically destroy girls' minds until they're ready to destroy their bodies physically as well. What I found was that the consensus seems to be when a girl starts testosterone hormone treatment, they become moodier, more combative, more opinionated, but they have more of a problem with short-term memory and can't seem to focus quite as well as they did before. Now, my initial thought as a staunch Christian conservative, (laughs) yes, I know, you probably couldn't tell, was that maybe testosterone helps you to at least feel that you see things clearer. Everything I'm finding says no, that's not an effect. So then I moved into my second theory. Knowing that in general, men are more logical, women are more emotional, and having been somewhat berated and dressed down in the past by a woman who shall remain nameless, and no, it's not my former wife, for not being a sympathetic person, and I'll address this in a minute, I wondered, does testosterone affect empathy? So looking that up, the answer came back, Maybe. There have been a number of smaller studies done where the researchers all concluded that the data showed higher levels of testosterone correlates with lower levels of empathy. That said, there has been a larger study done more recently attempting to utilize a much higher level of control that says that a correlation was not found between the two. In the article I was reading on a psychology site, they concluded that for now, until more studies are done, producing more clear, conclusive results, the only conclusion that can be drawn is testosterone might have an effect on empathy. Okay, so what does that mean with regard to voting? Men and women see issues differently. That's quite clear. To the woman that accused me of not being sympathetic, after going back and thinking about it and looking into some definitions, I determined that she was simply incorrect. I am, in fact, sympathetic. I am not empathetic. And looking at the etymology of the words, the common word pathy from the Latin pathos means feeling. So these words have to do with feeling. Empathy with the prefix M means basically in. Being empathetic means you get in the situation with the person experiencing the issue. You not only see it, You experience it with that person. You are in the feelings that person has. Being sympathetic with the prefix sim means together. You don't get in the issue. You look at it from the outside with maybe the same amount of care, but you don't allow yourself to become part of the situation. You are together with that person in their feelings, but not in. I described it like this. A mom and a dad both witness their little darling totally wipe out on the bike in the road. The kid is all skinned up, bleeding, crying, snot flowing. You know, the standard. They both run over. That's the pathos or the feeling part. Both parents have a feeling for this banged up kid. The mother will quickly assess the situation, and if determining that it's going to be okay, she'll generally get down with the child, pull him or her into her arms, and more often than not, will cry with the child as she tries to comfort the tears away. The dad will also quickly assess the situation, and if determined that no further emergencies exist, will generally quickly arrive at, rub some dirt in it, you're okay. Let's get back on that bike. The mother gets in the situation and is trying, in her way, to make things better, to fix the problem and return it to normal. The dad is doing the same thing from a different perspective. It's not that the dad doesn't care. It's that the dad is looking at normal from a more future outlook, beyond the temporary pain. If you don't get back on that bike now, you never will, or you can't let fear conquer you. Those are longer-term outlooks, but the level of caring is the same with both parties. Now, clearly, these lines blur. Men are capable of empathy. Women can appear cold while being sympathetic. But in general, if you think about it, these divisions hold true. And I think this is the general split we see with party voting preference and why a boost of testosterone would make men more apt to vote on the right. When you look at the two parties, somewhat their platforms, but even more so their campaigning and debate styles. You'll see the split. Democrats present themselves as the party that cares. Look at what they're doing today. Saving our planet from climate change for future generations. Forgiving student debt because repaying loans is hard. A lot of people are stressed over it. Introducing and steadily increasing social welfare programs. Promoting the 80 plus genders. However you feel it's right foisting transgenderism onto our kids because we don't want to make them feel bad by telling them no. We've demonized spanking. We've removed statues, renamed about anything and everything, renamed sports teams and changed mascots, changed flags, all in the name of trying not to offend anyone. Abortions for anyone, anytime, because we don't want you to struggle or be inconvenienced. Increased minimum wage, because everyone has the right to make a living. With regard to this pandemic, everyone must do what they're told. Mask, lockdown, vax, because as Puddin' Head Joe said multiple times, we already have that one empty chair around the dinner table we don't want to kill grandma see the emotional empathetic appeal and the list goes on and on and on this is empathy to a point of hypocrisy I'd argue as if you follow out these programs to their specific absurd ends you'll find that they're unattainable not realistic or at worst they all conflict with each other take the latest debate men can be women men can have babies abortion is a woman's issue Men can't speak on abortion. But, but men can have babies, so why can't men speak on this? See, it, it conflicts. Further, we, or I, hear things like, no uterus, no opinion, which is just another hive mind response that every one of these terrible women screech, and there are protests in front of certain Supreme Court justices' homes because as men, they're not allowed an opinion on the subject. But are they protesting Justice Breyer's house? Are they asking him to recuse himself from the vote as a man? No, because he's going to vote with them. So he's a man that's allowed an opinion. See? Hypocrisy. Republicans, on the other hand, are generally thought of as being cold and uncaring. Cut back social programs, rather. Push people back into the workforce. Allow businesses and states to determine the best wage for a job. Drastically reduce or eliminate abortion altogether. Stop rewriting history, especially the nasty parts. Allow people the freedom to speak, especially speech you don't personally agree with. Make people repay what they borrowed. Drill baby drill, not because we want an oil covered planet, but because it's the best way right now that we know of, that we have, to not only allow our country to keep moving and our country does a massive amount of good in this world, but it also helps underdeveloped countries to become stronger, better, more prosperous. With regard to the pandemic, let people decide what's best for them, it's their call The government can't make the best choice for every state, every town, every school, or every person. People need to be able to grow up and assess their own risk. And that list goes on and on. As with the parents, the left at least presents itself as the mom, empathizing with the child, narrowly looking at each and every situation as its own problem that must be solved. The right stands above and says, this may hurt right now. This may be scary right now, but doing this next thing is for your own good. Looking at the situation as a whole from a more wide-angle view with the knowledge that not every problem can be just wished or funded away. If the addition of testosterone does have an effect on empathy, and I'd argue that it does, it may not make a person think clearer... But it may make that person able to see the political landscape in a more logical, sacrificing empathy, long-term, wide-angle view, versus a more emotional, sacrificing logic, short-term, narrow view. This is my speculation. Take it for what it's worth. So, moving back to the Bible, how do we see this? Well, in the beginning, God created man, and after all was almost said and done, a suitable helper couldn't be found. So, God took a rib from Adam and made woman, meaning out of man. Of course, God being sovereign, this was his plan since before the beginning, but showing Adam how all the other animals may be just wonderful, but not suitable to be his other half, his helpmeet, was most likely the plan so that Adam could understand the uniqueness of Eve, the completion that Eve brought to him. In fact, Adam responded with, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Moses, the author of Genesis, finishes that thought. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Paul expands on the male-female relationship in Ephesians and 1 Timothy and puts some boundaries out there. Starting in Ephesians, we see, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, You know, clearly the male chauvinist said, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what you'll see is that at no time in the Bible does any author state that a woman is lesser than the man, only different They are complementary, and they are complementary because the man is generally more logical and gives the appearance of cold indifference through sympathy, and the woman is more emotional and gives the appearance of warmth and thoughtfulness through empathy. And this is how it should be. So, should this extend outside the church, into the workforce, the government, etc.? I don't know. Maybe. I've got a woman for a boss. She's great. I have no problem working for her at all, and I think she does a great job. I could make the argument that there are even now some jobs that women just don't do for various reasons. Yeah, there are always anomalies, but you know what I'm saying. I could make the case that there are some jobs women shouldn't do. I can also easily argue the case that women shouldn't be in government. All I need to do is look at party affiliation, tie it to the platform that each party pushes, and look at the voting record. Our current Senate has 24 women out of the 100 senators. Out of the 24, we have 16 Democrats, 8 Republicans. In the House, we have 121 women out of the 435 reps. Out of the 121, 90 are Democrat, 31 are Republican. Is that because the right is chauvinistic? Or because the left policies more closely align with empathy and emotionalism? Likewise, I could make the case that there are jobs that men shouldn't do, and I could easily make the case that a country ran solely by right-leaning men would appear and feel cold, and in some cases, it would be. I can also make the case that men don't think things through the same as women, and are more prone to making some rash decisions, which don't always turn out great. So the reality is, I don't know where the line should be drawn, but I can absolutely guarantee that what we've got today is wrong. Let's address the last point made by the author of this article quickly, as it's impossible for me to conclude anything uh, conclusively. Declining testosterone levels in the U.S., is that true? Well, from what I found, yes, the levels are decreasing in the U.S. The study gives some theories, including an aging population, but even adjusted for that, the same decline is seen even in younger men. They proposed that maybe increasing BMI, increasing obesity, may have something to do with it. Now, there have been studies about testosterone levels and environmental factors, being around kids, women, etc. I don't know what affects it, but I do know that transgender, and I never get it right, let's just say men pretending to be women are reducing their levels. I know that the left is pushing for women to be men, men to be women, everyone to be gay. We also have the metrosexual, which is generally an effeminate man who is very well maintained, a fancy fella. We're seeing straight men pierce all over themselves, wear clothes that men shouldn't wear, doing things men shouldn't do. We're seeing the decrease of men that can actually do things with their hands. We see the left with their welfare programs promote single mothers, and we see boys growing up without a male role model. We're seeing the glass ceiling shattered over and over and over. The left shaming women who want to be wives and mothers and shoving them into the workforce, shoving them up the corporate ladder. We're seeing women waiting longer and longer to have children. Could this affect the development of the child? I don't know. I think there are a lot of questions and a lot of studies that need to be done. But as it stands right now in our woke culture, not only can we not study these things, we can't even ask the questions without being demonized and canceled. What I can say for sure is that men and women are different by design. And it's okay for a man to be a man, a woman to be a woman. And whether single or paired up, we need to strive to be who God created us to be. In a world corrupted by sin, we all have pros and cons to who we are, and that's okay. But what's not okay is denying God, blurring gender lines, destroying the family, pushing for parity between the sexes. This, as is being seen, is nothing but destructive. If not as a country, individually, we need to push back toward God, toward His design, and be who we were created to be, not who the world tells us we're supposed to be. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly i'll be using at lcpodcast on getter lawrence j peter said against logic there is no armor like ignorance but jesus told us that if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free so stay in the word stay logical stay faithful and until next time god bless